Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Office Hours. I'm Vincent Chow and today I'm chatting with Dr. Kai Spiegerman, Associate Professor of Political Philosophy at the Department of Government here at the LSE. Dr. Spiegerman, thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you very much for coming. So I just want to get straight into it. Today we're talking about the non-identity problem. In the simplest terms possible, could you explain what it is? Good. The non-identity problem is one of these annoying pesky problems in philosophy that initially looks complex but is actually quite easy to understand. The idea is this. You are in a situation where on the one hand you can perform an action that in a certain sense is bad for a person but at the same time you change the identity of that person. So let's look at a practical example. It's a famous example. It's called the 14-year-old girl. Um, developed by uh, philosopher Derek Parfit. So he says, imagine the 14-year-old girl who is considering whether she should have a child. And uh, she knows that if she has a child now, she won't give a very good uh, um, life to that child in the beginning in the sense that she's not well prepared for motherhood right now. But by and large, um, the child's life would be worth living. So she could have the child now, or she could wait. Now, in an intuitive sense, we want to say that she should wait because she is harming her child. But if you think about it carefully, that claim is actually not true. She is not harming her child because if the child is born, the child then cannot say, you have harmed me by giving this early birth because if the child, uh, if she, if the mother had waited, the child would not have been born. So in that sense, the child cannot say, I have been made worse off, I have been harmed by your action, because if the mother had taken a different action, if she had waited, we would not have seen that child come into existence. That's the structure of the non-identity problem in a nutshell. Now you might think, yeah, so this is, I mean, a very specific problem, a very contained problem, it's only about motherhood and children, but that is another mistake that you could make. It's actually a problem that is absolutely everywhere. So let's now look at this in terms of public policy. So suppose we have a choice between not doing anything about, say, I mean, I don't know, some sort of big public policy project that could make uh, people's life better. Um, or we could engage in that public policy project. Um, what could this be? It could be something like um, reforming the NHS and to improve it. Now, the problem with these settings is if you embark on the policy, let's say, you know, reforming the NHS, you do not only change the institution, you also change the course of the world in the sense that at some point other people will have been born. So the reform of the NHS happens and, you know, there are um, now effects such that, um, I don't know what, maybe a new hospital is built. A new hospital is built, this means that um, when um, people... Um, uh, when, 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 when people go about their lives, they might, you know, use this new hospital. That means their kind of life plans subtly change. Uh, maybe their life plans subtly change so that they meet other people. Maybe they meet other partners. Maybe other children are born. And eventually, I mean, it might, you know, take 
several generations, but eventually the change will trickle through and the identity of all the future people will have changed. Now, where does this leave us? So this policy is not only changing the NHS for the better, it's also changing the identity of all future people. And if that's the case, then this means that whoever is born cannot say that they have been harmed by the policy or benefited by the policy, because if the policy had been different, they would not have existed. I just want to unpack some of the things you've said there, because I think there's a lot there to be unpacked. Am I right in saying that one of the premises of this problem is that identity is tied to a certain notion of time? Meaning, if I was born at a different time than the time that I was actually born, that would mean that I would have a different identity. I would be a different person. Yeah, I mean, within reason, right? I mean, I don't think that uh, a delay of five minutes would change the uh, identity of the person but of course, what is very important is the moment of conception and what happens there. So that determines um, what the um, genetical setup um, of the person will be. And that, um, according to most plausible view of identities, is tied up um, with um, the um, identity of a person. So in the most extreme case, I mean, so if, you know someone is born to different parents, right? I mean, that's, you know, that would not be the same person. If someone is born, let's say, two months later, very likely that it's not going to be the same person um, because the genetical setup will be different. So what are the implications of this problem? What's at stake, really? Well, it depends now what your philosophical response to the problem is. So in philosophy, um, you always have in principle, two different responses. You can say, oh yeah, or yeah, yeah, right? So if you say, oh yeah, you basically try to deny um, the core of the problem or try to find a strategy such that in a way you can still talk about harming future people um, that basically allows you to ignore the problem, get rid of the problem as much as you can. But... It's a tricky path to take. So think about the intuitive way how we speak about harm. So if I um, push someone um, on campus and uh, she falls, um, then, you know, the relevant point here is that I should not have done that and that I could not have done that. So I have harmed my victim in the sense that if I had done something else, she would not have been harmed. So you see that harm, I claim at least, and many people claim, in the standard understanding always has the counterfactual, right? The alternative scenario. If, you know, the perpetrator had not done that, then, you know, the situation of the victim, the harmed person would have been better. There are people who think that you can develop a non-comparative notion of harm, that you don't need the comparison. That would be a way around the non-identity problem. Personally, I think difficult path to take, so um, I wouldn't want to say too much more about it. So let's think about the yeah, yeah side of the response. And that basically says, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the non-identity problem is a problem, but who says that we have to um, set up everything in terms of harm? So it's still the case that bad things um, happen um, 
in the activities that we used to be calling harmful, but now can't call harmful anymore. So in our kind of NHS reform case, it's of course still good to reform the NHS and maybe build new hospitals and so on, because it overall promotes goodness. So for instance, if you are utilitarian and you're interested in maximizing utility, you can say, well, it's the right thing to do and it's the wrong thing not to do it because utility or goodness is improved. That seems to me like a plausible response. Um, there might be other ways here, but I mean, these are the two most important ones. So the non-identity problem essentially threatens the popular conventional way that most people think about harm, which is that an action is harmful if someone is made worse off than they otherwise would have been had that action not been committed. Whereas the problem doesn't necessarily pose a threat to people who don't think about harm in these conventional terms. You have to move away from this idea that a specific person has been harmed and you have to find a way that is no longer attached to the identity of any specific people. So that could be the overall goodness in the world or maybe a relevant group that you define. Um, it could even be, I mean, that's actually a thought that I quite like. You could say the critique is just not about a specific person being harmed, but someone who is in that position or a similar position is worse off than in a different scenario that would have been imaginable. But you have to carefully avoid the idea that it's about this particular person being worse off because that's actually not the case. So let's apply this now to probably one of the biggest problems we face in the world today, mm -hmm. climate change. Now, the examples you've used have been, uh, you've, you talked about the NHS reform. Now, this would be comparatively a small-scale reform compared to the kind of reform that we're talking about when we're thinking about climate change. So am I right in saying that a lot more identities are involved in this discussion? And also, the time horizon we're talking about is much, much bigger than, for example, NHS reform. Yeah. So I think the climate change example is much better than the NHS reform because you will see much more immediately how the effect plays out. So let's say we are now facing the big decision between introducing a carbon tax or not. And we ask ourselves whether not introducing the carbon tax will harm future people. Now, again, this is the intuitive, plausible uh, kind of way of thinking about it, because climate scientists tell us that uh, unmitigated climate change will cause dramatic bad effects on uh, many people. Um, let's just take an example. So rising sea levels will um, affect people living in uh, less developed, um, low-lying countries um, close to the sea. Um, I mean, Bangladesh, for example, will be badly affected by uh, climate change. So here's the policy choice. Carbon tax, no carbon tax. Now, if we put the carbon tax in place, that means that people will change their behavior in response to the tax. So it might be that, um, you know, I mean, let's take you as an example. Um, maybe in five years time, uh, you um, drive a car, um, but now the carbon tax comes into place and um, you actually decide to leave your car at home more often and you take public transport more often. So then maybe um, 
you meet um, a relevant partner um, not at the petrol station but um, at the tube station. Now that means that you know this might well be a different person, quite likely a different person. So then eventually maybe different children will be born, and um, of course this is just one story among you know many 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 many. Um, eventually, um, because the effect of a global carbon tax will be substantial and will affect everybody's life in one way or the other, the identity of the whole world population will be different than in the scenario where the carbon tax would not have been put into place. And that means we cannot say about any of these future people that they will have been harmed if we don't introduce the global carbon tax. Because if we had introduced the global carbon tax, they would never have existed. And you cannot complain that you have been made worse off if in the alternative scenario you would never have existed. Making the same people better off with the carbon tax is simply not an option on the menu. Because whenever you introduce the tax, you change the identity of all these future people. That is, that's the core problem. So we have to get away from this notion that the reason why we introduce the carbon tax is because we would otherwise harm future people. We don't harm future people. But we do all kinds of other things that are bad if we don't introduce the carbon tax. I think at this point, we'll probably have people who are saying, wait a minute, how could it be possibly be true that if we don't tackle climate change today, we're not harming future people? Isn't the popular view, the popular argument for combating climate change is that, you know, we need to care about our, our descendants, our children, our grandchildren. Is it really true that we're not harming them? Well, I, th I think it's a confused uh, w uh, use of the notion harm. Um, it could be that people mean something subtly different when they talk harm. So they could say, they could say something like, there will be future people and they will have needs and these needs will be less well met if we don't do anything about climate change. I would maintain that these people have not been harmed, but it is true that um, their situation in terms of their needs is worse than it would have been the case if we had put in a different climate policy. But of course, different people would have existed. So again, one has to move away from personalizing this and making this about personal harm. And, you know, if, if implicitly we mean that with, uh, you know, saying that future people would have been harmed, I mean, then, I mean, I don't have an issue with that. I mean, people can define by themselves how they want to use their words. But if they really want to insist it's the same notion of harm as, you know, the personal harm right now, if, you know, I harm someone by reckless driving or so, then I think we are really just confused. So how much of this is just a issue amongst philosophers? So is there any practical implications for the climate change uh, debate or the climate change policies in the real world today? It's more important for the sort of arguments we use than for the policy that we have to choose in the end. So my view is that there are important normative reasons why we should fight climate change. And they have something to do with the fact that we are responsible for promoting goodness in the world. So we have a duty to make the world a better place 
or at least not a worse place. And that's a good enough reason to fight climate change. So the practical implications might be, might be quite limited. But how we set up the argument, um, that is really affected by, by the non-identity non problem. Hmm. And so I just want to bring it all the way back to Derek Parfit, who was the philosopher who first thought of this problem. Do you know what his, uh, his view on this was? So he described the problem. Did, did he also propose a solution? Well, Parfit is interesting because, I mean, for Parfit, it was always more important to first map out all the different aspects of the problem rather than just arguing for one position. That makes him so fascinating as a philosopher that he really explores all the different argumentative moves. Um, but my take on Parfit is that what I just said uh, comes quite close to his position, actually. So he wanted to move away from the idea that we have to spell everything out in terms of person-affecting principles. Uh, and if we don't do that, then we can still say something meaningful about these cases. Well, Doctor, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, and I just want to end with some recommendations for what people might want to read or research if they are interested in knowing more about this problem. So do you have a recommendation? Well, the obvious place to go to, even though it's maybe initially a bit challenging, is Derek Parfit's book, Reasons and Persons. It's an absolute classic in 20th century philosophy. It's a fantastically rich book, and the non-identity problem is really just one problem of a great many of fascinating problems that he discusses. Um, it's a book that requires slow reading, but um, it's, despite being dense, remarkably clear. So um, I can recommend it. If you if you look for a more gentle starting point, and if you look for something that is maybe available on the internet, there is a very nice uh, summary on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy by uh, Melinda Roberts on the non-identity problem. This is a great source to just get an overview and get a sense of um, the structure of the debate. But if you have the guts for it, I would really say read Parfit first and then read Robert second. It's often good to go to the original before you go to the people who try to summarize a long debate. I completely agree. And I would also add that if you're not much of a reader, then you could uh, look up Derek Parfit's speech at Oxford at the Effective Altruism Conference in the end of 2016. It was one of his last public lectures before he his sad uh, death in the early, in the on the first day of 2017, actually. So um, it was one of his last talks where he actually talked about how his views have changed on the non-identity problem. So if you're not much of a reader, I'd recommend that as well. See, this is a good example that um, academics can learn something from office hours too, because I was not aware of the speech. So I will actually listen to that with interest. Okay, great. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.